Auto Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. And welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler, hang your cloak on a peg, grab a stool, and come gather around the fire. There are stories to be told, and you are among friends. And I'm coming to you live tonight from the Telephone City, Brantford, Ontario. I'm at my mom's place with the boys here to do a little fishing. We were at Mount Pleasant Ponds today. Uh, the uh, The boys were we were caught in a, a downpour, but the boys had rain ponchos. I uh, I sought a shelter under a tree. There was no thunder or lightning, so uh, it was a anyway. They were catching fish left and right every time they cast. Just little panfish, sunfish, and bluegills. But they had a great time, and hoping to uh, to get out fishing again tomorrow. Uh, before we get rolling, happy Lord Simcoe Day tomorrow. I should say in about an hour, I guess officially. Uh, I know some of it call some of you call it the civic holiday. I don't know what that means. That's a rather sterile and nondescript name for a holiday. It's Lord Simcoe Day, and I'm sure it's only a matter of time before Lord Simcoe is cancelled here in Ontario by North America's most ridiculous mayor and his silly council. Lord Simcoe and his good friend. Lord Dundas, they were the good guys. They were the progressives of their era. They fought to end slavery. And uh, what this whole woke left is doing, canceling people like Lord Dundas, renaming streets, it's just plain dumb. It really is just plain dumb. It is inconceivable to me. That the left, which proclaims itself to be morally superior to the rest of us, can't even bother to crack open a history book and learn the truth about Lord Dundas. But these are the people who, uh, you know, we continue to vote into office. These are not serious people. In fact, their ignorance makes them dangerous. Okay, now uh, I keep receiving emails from people who have signed up for my newsletter inner sanctum to let me know they haven't received july's issue and that's because the newsletter is on summer hiatus and i will begin publishing the monthly newsletter again in september keep signing up by all means keep signing up at strangeplanet.ca strangeplanet.ca and then You'll start receiving Inner Sanctum directly to your email inbox once a month for free. Again, go to strangeplanet.ca to sign up. It's easy, fast, and absolutely free. Carlos Kajina is my technical producer. Ryan White is my live stream producer. Now, we should mention, uh, because of the nature of the content on tonight's program, we will not be live streaming on my YouTube channel. I already have two strikes against me. Third time you're out, and uh, rather than risk the channel being taken down permanently, uh, we're going to post this program to my Rumble channel. If you haven't already done so, subscribe to my Rumble channel. Go to rumble.com, rumble.com, and search under channels for Richard Serrett or Richard Serrett Strange Planet. I think either of those will work. Richard Serrett or Richard Serrett's Strange Planet. And uh, eventually I'll be leaving 
YouTube entirely. All right. Uh, Joseph A. Olson is going to be with us for the entire two hours. Science writer, uh, retired engineer, co-founder and senior fellow at Principia Scientific International. And we're going to talk globalism. We'll talk about the pandemic. We'll talk about graphene oxide. What is it exactly? What does it have to do, if anything, with the vaccine? And um, again, you can understand, I think, where we're heading and why we're not going to be live streaming on YouTube tonight. Joseph Olson is, as I say, retired engineer, impassioned science writer, respected innovative thinker with over 100 major civil engineering and climate-related articles to his name. He's co-founder and senior fellow at Principia Scientific International, PSI for short. It's a self-sustaining community of impartial scientists from around the world, deliberating, debating, and publishing cutting-edge thinking on a range of issues without a preconceived idea of outcomes. Isn't that supposed to be the way it works? Joseph worked with uh, Dr. Timothy Ball and other scientists on an important science text debunking the greenhouse gas theory. And again, the website is principia-scientific.com, principia-scientific.com. All right, Carlos, do we have uh, Joseph? Are we able to raise Joseph? We appear to be having some phone issues. Still having phone issues. All right, not sure. I think we've got him. I think we have Joseph Olson. Hey, Joseph, can you hear me? Yes. Uh, Fantastic. There's no way that we could tiptoe around the fact checkers at YouTube. And amazingly enough, there's also a fact checker problem at Facebook, which just... Yes, we're going to talk about that. Before we do that, because you've been on my, my podcast, you've been on with me on Coast to Coast, you've been on this program with me a couple of times, I think, but there may have been, there may be some new people listening that aren't familiar with Principia Scientific International. Just kind of give us the mission statement, if you could, Joseph. Why do you exist? Well, um, John O'Sullivan had a great idea back in 2010 to get a collection of authors and write a book that was based on the actual empirical science using thermodynamics and known radiation physics to explain why carbon dioxide could not possibly have any effect on Earth's temperature other than to be a a low-level coolant. Are we still having a problem? No, I'm hearing you. I'm listening. Okay, okay. For some reason, i got a beep. And so anyhow, he got their collection of... um, seven authors at that time from five different countries who had never met each other, and we all wrote article uh, or a chapter and put together Slaying the Sky Dragon as a book. And then we had trouble getting the book launched because, you know, they don't want to carry it in your major bookstores, and they don't want to have anything against the official words. So after our book launched, we decided that the only way to get wider exposure to the truths that weren't being read in our book was to form a society where we could have a a daily, a weekly or possibly daily newsletter where we could put out articles that we had all vetted and approved as being traditional scientific method. 
on a wide range of subjects. We cover an enormous number of things at Principles Scientific. The last year, we've really concentrated on this uh, pandemic thing. So, but basically, we were covering, you know, astronomy, geology, archaeology, um, all of the physics, chemistry. Um, I've written articles on abigenic oil and had an interview with uh, George Norrie on that back on March 18th. Really good two-hour discussion about how the planet manufactures hydrocarbons, and they exist throughout the universe. You know, you've got giant uh, methane clouds forming nebulas around uh, constellations, and how in the world could you have that if it only comes from dead dinosaurs? So... There's a wide range of science that we've been lied to about. Right. Well, that that then gets us into the larger question, and, and that is, what has happened to science? What has happened to the scientific method and the way that the public is informed about scientific matters? And then, obviously, that will extend down into... Um, you know, the the, the pandemic and, and so forth. But let's just start with the scientific method. When did that all change? And when did you decide, or why, I guess, what was the the point at which you decided, you know, we have to start reporting on the old scientific method, the way it used to be? Well, I think it was actually 2011 when we started uh, PSI. But you can go back to a quote by William Casey uh February of 1981, right after Reagan took office in his very first board meeting with um, President Reagan. He said, we will know that our um, propaganda is successful when everything the American be- public believes is false. And so there's been a concerted effort across the board, not just in science, but certainly in history and current events, to shape a narrative based on desires of people at the top of the pyramid. Basically, you have a priest class that runs all of the science, and they're, they're in charge of all of the funding. And like I said in one of my articles about, we've spent, under Reagan, we were spending $20 million a year on uh, climatology, which is really a fake science anyway. It's no better than phrenology or alchemy. But we were spending $20 million a year in federal funding on it under um, Big Bush. That jumped to a billion dollars a year. Under Slick Willie in 92, that jumped to $2 billion a year. So at the time we were writing about it, we had been funding over $100 billion for um, carbon endangerment findings. And like I wrote in one of my articles, if all you fund is findings for danger, danger is all you'll find. And so that's why they were right, able to link right. all these. When you have a hammer, events. when you have a hammer, everything. When you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Oh yeah, 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 and that's the nail they wanted to nail. And that's why they keep trying to come back and and saying that COVID is caused because of climate change. You know, it's absolutely absurd. They've got these certain little carts that they want to push, and every bit of it has to do with limiting the uh, freedom of the general individual in the on the planet. This is a, a very myoptic, um, feudalist system of, of organization. And so bottom line is you, you have two means of social structure. Either you have a society where you have informed consent 
governance by informed consent, free speech, and property rights, or you do not. There's basically, those are the only two ends of the spectrum. And what the Fabian Socialist Economists did was that they claimed that fascism and Nazism are right-wing, so they could frame a debate where that was right-wing, and then communism and Marxism were left-wing, and what was in the middle was progressive and socialism. So basically they set two two margins and tried to keep the dialogue between those two. But if you actually look at the functioning of all of those systems, communism, fascism, Marxism, Nazism, progressivism, and socialism, they are all rebranded feudalism. And that's the problem. When you have a very powerful group of monarch monopolists that have been exercising feudal control over humanity for thousands of years, they don't want to turn loose of the control. And you can trace the organization of all of the major corporations and certainly all of the voting machines corporations all go back to the Privy Council and the, you know, so we don't want to get too deep into that, but basically no. you can you can believe that everybody is an altar boy and an Eagle Scout and things just happen by random, or you can say there are people on this planet that don't have the best interest of the majority of the people on the planet. And so that's the reality that you have to face up to, is that there are people so, that are very nefarious. So so let, let's talk about a little bit about the evolution of a virus, because here's what I'm, I've been reading. That for a virus, you know, to jump from one species to another, uh, the way that we're told SARS-CoV-2 did, uh, that would, in, in, in nature, that could take hundreds and hundreds of years. Uh, is that true? Yes. Well, here's the thing about viruses. They always have to have a living host. They're they're. they're pretty much an inert little um, molecule that invades a host and then hijacks the host's replication system to manufacture more viruses, and a host can produce a thousand viruses before it finally busts the cell wall and releases those viruses so that they can go out and infect other cells. That's the, the hypothesis of it. But in the process of hijacking your DNA replication system, you, uh, the virus absorbs a little bit of DNA. So it's constantly being modified by its host tissue. And since no two hosts are the same, no modifications are going to be the same. You don't have a, a homogeneous feedstock for viruses to grow on. So viruses are going to be growing in, in different little vectors. And what happens is that either they get more virulent are they and they kill off all of their hosts, or they get less and less virulent, which is really what herd immunity is about. It's not that everybody gets sick and then has magic antibodies. What happens is is that is enough people are exposed to a virus, the virus is mutated by enough people that it does not end up being uh, as as virulent. 
And right, what right. because the virus is, doesn't want to kill its host. The, the virus wants to survive. It doesn't want to kill its host, right? Well, that's you know pretty short-sighted unless you, the virus you're talking about is the feudalists that want to kill 90% of the people on the planet. We're their hosts, and they're just they've decided now's the time to to do their magic reset. So, but for instance, the smallpox virus. We have bone samples going back 80,000 years of human skeletons from a wide range of places on the planet. And the first identified smallpox infection was a Viking that was 10,000 years old. Now that was probably a zoonotic transfer. Probably it was cowpox from a deer that he was eating or whatever, but something in his environment got into his body and infected him with smallpox. Smallpox had a low spread and a low fatality rate until about the uh, 1870s, at which point it started becoming an epidemic as it was getting more and more viral and more and more transferable. And that's when Jenner came up with the cowpox as a uh, vaccination. So he found out that if you gave somebody cowpox, that it was similar enough to smallpox that you could inoculate them and cause a resistance where they would not get the smallpox disease. So they had universal inoculation from in England from 1850 until 1950, and in 1950 they said there's no reason to inoculate anybody anymore because the virus had already mutated enough that the wild virus was no longer infectious at all. People would get it and just shed it, and they never even know they had it. And so it was basically on its way out. They think that, that polio was due to poor um, septic sewage systems and possibly DDT and possibly impurities that were in the vaccines that were starting to be introduced at that time. And so that whole epidemic may not have been the epidemic that they claim it to be. Here's the problem. Um, we're discussing viruses which are smaller than the wavelength of visible light. So you cannot see them with an optical microscope. You can magnify something 60,000 times with light waves, but then you get light waves that are, that are beyond visible light spectrum, and you cannot see anything smaller than that because the light wave doesn't have anything big enough to reflect off of, so it just passes right by the viruses. So you couldn't actually identify viruses until Wendell Stanley identified the first one with an electron microscope in 1931 and won the Nobel Prize for it in 1946. So anything that you concocted in the way of a Petri dish to claim that you'd, you'd uh, had some kind of magic fluid, they didn't even have a real name for viruses because it was just a fluid until they could actually right. see one and then go. But then there's another school of thought that says the whole... Okay, Joseph, i got to jump in here, though, for a second because we've got to take yeah. a timeout. We'll, yeah. uh, we'll be back on the other side. Joseph A. Olson, senior fellow, senior fellow co-founder of uh, Principia Scientific International, back with more of our conversation right after these. Exploring theories, uncovering facts, and offering a different view of the universe. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett. Joseph A. Olson stays with us, retired engineer, 
science writer, senior fellow, co-founder, Principia Scientific International, and co-author of Slaying the Sky Dragon, Death of the Greenhouse Gas Theory. Uh, we were talking about the uh, about viruses, and uh, um, I wanted to get into a discussion about based on the available information that you've seen, was SARS-CoV-2, to your mind, created in a lab through gain-of-function? I think it's pretty unequivocal. That's what all the records show that Fauci and his good buddy at the microbiology lab funded. So, yeah, and and it also appears that Ebola and MERS and SARS were also bioweapons. So we've had a very nefarious program going for a long time. If a virus is manufactured, is there a particular sequence that you could identify and say, aha, there is the marker. We know that this is not a naturally occurring virus. This was manufactured. Yes, there is. There again, you've got the DNA from the, the virus it's, or the RNA in the virus itself, which has host DNA matter in it. So if you've got a sequence that came from HIV and you've got a bat that, that lived in a very remote area of China that suddenly appears 800 miles away from its natural habitat, and then it's combined with other uh, zoonotic uh, DNA, then it's pretty obviously that this was something that somebody got together with their CRISPR gun and just started doing some gene splicing. So I, I'd say the when we heard, probability, okay. yes. When Go we ahead. heard fr from various institutions that they had isolated the virus, in other words, in, I mean, and you can't create a vaccine unless, presumably, unless you've isolated the virus first. But if that marker is indicating that it is manufactured, that it is not naturally occurring. When somebody identifies or isolates the virus, wouldn't it be painfully obvious to them? Wouldn't it scream out to them, this is man-made? Well, that's what the first group in India published, and then they were immediately forced offline by all of the big publishing and, and science funding organizations. And then a year later, it popped up that, oh, yeah, it does look like it does have four segments of HIV uh, RNA inside the, the isolated virus. But there again, you know, there's a lot of confusion at this point. I'm ready for all of microbiology to have a worldwide symposium and lay all of the current theories and all of the current facts on the table and have a wider range of scientists than just the ones that are in the crooked peer pal review process review the material and come up with a better consensus because there's quite a few doctors including Andy Kaufman and um, Dana Bush and half a dozen others and I intended to get something written up but I just didn't get it to PSI today we're gonna the FDA came out with a list of the dirty dozen doctors that are spreading misinformation about how wonderful vaccines are, and I was going to add another dozen to that list so that people would have a group of scientists that are highly qualified and, and medical experts that they could go to and spend some time doing some alternative research. 
And what Kaufman's saying is that antibodies are just exosomes and the same thing with viruses and that they're just debris that's left over after the T cells, which are really the infection fighters of the body, have done their work. And so, you know, there's a lot of conflicting material. And since we, we don't have the ability to have a level playing field to discuss all of these alternative theories, at this point, everything's still nebulous. But as far as I'm concerned, the preponderance of the evidence is that everything that's been based on the 1895 Pasteur germ theory and the 1910 Flexner report, which was paid for by Rockefeller, and which he used to create the AMA, and the Rockefeller Institute, and John Hopkins University, is all very suspect at this point. And their behavior since then has been even more suspect. You were describing the size of the virus. I don't know why, at this point, it's even controversial to discuss the efficacy of masks. It has often been explained, uh, you, you mentioned the Dirty Dozen, I think I've probably talked to some of them on my, I have a... Uh, a daily afternoon show. Dr. Peter McCullough has been on the program a number of times. Dr. Robert Malone has been on the program, the inventor of the mRNA vaccine. And when I talk to McCullough or, or others, and we talk about the efficacy of masks, to them, it's just, it's so painfully obvious that a mask is like a chain link fence and the virus is like a mosquito. A mask cannot possibly stop a virus. Can you talk to me about that? Well, you've got a virus that's 20 nanometers, and you've got a mask that even if it's the best N95 quality mask is 300 nanometers. So, yes, you can pass I think we lost you there. Holding hands and dancing side by side through the mask without a problem. The problem with the mask is that it does restrict the exit of carbon dioxide. So instead of being exhaling all of the carbon dioxide, and it also catches mucus and bacteria, and then you're re-inhaling that. So what happens within two minutes of putting a mask on is that your blood level oxygen drops from 20% to 18%, which is the OSHA limit for safe occupancy. So if you're working in a mine or you're doing work inside a ship hold or you're down doing tunnel work, OSHA, OSHA has oxygen meters, and they say exit the work zone. You don't have enough oxygen in your blood system. So, you know, you're doing something that's dangerous to your health for no benefit at all. It's virtue signaling. We were talking briefly about the um, smallpox, and I wrote right inside voodoo, which is the sequencing of the virola virus, which indicates that it entered the human population about 10,000 B.C. with Chinese references from 400 B.C. and Egyptian mummies with smallpox from 300 B.C. So it was pretty much worldwide. Around 1700 A.D. in in Europe, it started um, expanding. And then in 1796 is when Edward Jenner did the first cowpox inoculation. 1853, UK made vaccination mandatory. And by 1948, UK no longer had uh, mandatory vaccinations for smallpox. We still had them in the United States, and they made a big deal about ending smallpox. Um, I think the final cases were in India. Uh, around the uh, 60s or 70s, but 
it was a disease that was on its way out anyway, because there again, either you're becoming more and more virile and more and more infective, or you're becoming less and less, and you're becoming less and less, then the systems are self-extinguishing. All right. We have another uh, break here, so we'll uh, take another time out. We'll come back and discuss the COVID vaccines. You know, now we're hearing, of course, that even if you've had the vaccine or two jabs of the uh, genetic therapy, let's call it, that you can still spread COVID. Although that's not really being widely communicated by our public health officials, because that would seem to undermine this whole idea of medical segregation. If you've had the vaccine, you go over here. If you haven't had the vaccine, you go over here. Uh, we'll uh, discuss. Joseph Olson is senior fellow co-founder at Principia Scientific International, principia-scientific.com. Back with more in a moment. Stay with us. The world is being pulled over your eyes. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett. We're back with Joseph A. Olson, co-founder and senior fellow at Principia Scientific International. Principia-scientific.com is the website. Um, so I had Dr. Robert Malone on the um, my, my uh, daily afternoon show on Saga 960 AM, uh, the, uh, the inventor of the mRNA vaccine. And uh, he acknowledges it's, it's not a vaccine. It's a gene therapy. I mean, if you, have a, if you have a vaccine where you can still get COVID, or sorry, you can still get SARS-CoV-2, you can still transmit it, you can spread it to other people, does that fit the definition or maybe the old definition of what a vaccine is? Well, the old definition of vaccine was that it, it was either a dead virus or it was antibodies that were produced using a live virus, and that's what they in, infected you with, with the hopes that that was going to uh, stimulate your immune system to recognize and respond more rapidly to an invasion of that type infection. But there again, you know, the whole hypothesis behind vaccination needs, needs to have an open public debate. And to not leave one question unanswered, the N95 is N is for National Institute of Occupational Safety and Health. That's where the N comes from. And the 95 means that it filters out 95% of airborne particles, but it doesn't filter out gases, vapors, and it certainly doesn't filter out viruses. So that answered that question. Right. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. I mean, that, it, it's it, this is where we're at now. It, it's even controversial to say what I think most doctors have known, most scientists have known up until now, and they've suddenly forgot it, that, that masks cannot stop a virus. Uh, now it's now you can't say that. It's blasphemy. It's, it's very uh, interesting what's happening here. Um, I want to talk about graphene oxide. I keep hearing this come up. Graphene oxide in association with the uh, with these vaccines or these gene therapies. Uh, I'm reading that it's absolutely false that there is graphene oxide in these vaccines. Others are saying no, it's there. First of all, what is graphene oxide? Well, graphene is a six-sided um, crystalline form of carbon, and you know just because of the 
uh, outer shell electrons on carbon, it wants to form little beehives. And so if you just think about a single layer of atoms that are connected in the shape of a beehive, that's what graphene is. And, and so it would be a, a two-dimensional sheet, a single atom thick. And you can roll those and make nanotubes with it, and then you can use the nanotube as a delivery system. And they also are receptive to uh, certain radio frequencies, and it will cause them to join together. So you can have self-assimilating uh, units. So it could be that, that part of the RNA is that these things had to be kept at a really low temperature in order to uh, transport them and, and keep the RNA from decomposing because it's a pretty unstable molecule. And so they wrapped them in nanotubes, which then could be activated by 5G or by body temperature to open up and release the mRNA, which appears to be what the first round of um, vaccine doses were. But they're no longer delivering doses at uh, minus 80 degrees, you know, Fahrenheit. They're not delivering them in dry ice like the first rounds that were. So, and they're not providing the safety data sheets on any of the vaccines, so you don't really know what what they're, they're claiming to have put in the substance. And they're claiming that they have a, a thing where they can say it's proprietary information, and that's what we think they're using the graphene for. And there was a woman who was interviewed on Stu Peter's show, uh, Karen Kingston, who was a patent researcher with Pfizer for a decade. And that was her job to go around with their new patents and review other people's patents to find out what was actually uh, in in the other patents and if there was patent conflicts and if there were, you know, argue with the attorneys and get everything sorted out. So that was her job. She said unequivocally that graphene is one of the secret sauce things that's listed as proprietary in the Pfizer vaccine for certain. And then also we had a strange ruling or an opinion issued by an assistant attorney general uh, under A.G. Garland's office that said that uh, governments and uh, private businesses had the right to mandate uh, experimental vaccine injections. And she absolutely tore that to pieces. It's a great interview. It's about 20 minutes long. Stu Peters with uh, Karen Kingston. And I'll send you that link if you want to put it in the show notes because it's a great interview but she listed sure we can do that so just she listed at least four. we're coming up on a break here okay okay we're just uh, we're coming up on a break though i just want to um we've got about a minute and a half here is graphene oxide in and of itself toxic well here's what i just found on that graphene oxide uh if you go to a a, a website called particle and fiber Texicology. It says graphene um, is toxic to human beings, and this was a study that was published in 2016. So they've known that it was, and there again, I can send you the link to that. Matter of fact, I think I might have already done that. But yes, I think you did as well. Absolutely toxic in even small quantities. 
All right. When we come back, I want to revisit uh, exactly what it's doing reportedly in the vaccine, what's it, what it's intended to do, how gra- graphene oxide uh, is supposed to work. Back with uh, more of my conversation with Joseph A. Olson, senior fellow, co-founder of Principia Scientific International. Back with more in a moment. A moment. Stay with us. Where there's smoke, there's The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. So, you know, for the record, I mean, if you go online, all the fact checkers are saying there is no graphene oxide in the vaccines, in the COVID vaccines. Factcheck.afp.com, Forbes magazine wrote a piece, there is no graphene oxide in the vaccines. Uh, And yet, uh, Joseph, you say this Shall we call this person a whistleblower uh, advisor? Says absolutely there are graphene oxide uh, nanotubes inside these vaccines. So people are going to have to. She's a very well-informed whistleblower. So so let's let's talk about these these graphene oxide nanotubes. If, in fact, they are in the vaccines, what are they? Are they uh, are they acting as um, um, an adjuvant or what are they supposed to do? Well, you know, it's it's hard to figure out what these people are up to. Uh, graphene is not a real stable molecule, so it can actually be defeated by uh, several different chemical processes. So it's short-lived, but the problem is, is if it's causing blood clots, and particularly if it's causing micro blood clots, and that's what Dr. Charles Hoff out in Leighton, uh, Canada, discovered yeah, out I in talked British to him Columbia too. Yeah. with his population that they were having uh, problems breathing that they couldn't they couldn't um, they were winded really quick and that they had loss of the uh, motor skills in their hands and feet because those are where the smallest capillaries are and those would be the easiest to be plugged up with micro clots which he said are detectable only with a de-dimmer test and so he started yes. testing his patients, and he was saying, sure enough, that, you know, these, these people are having microclots, and you're not going to be able to solve that with your normal um, blood clotting medications, which is, would be like uh, heparin would be one that you use as an anticoagulant, and, you know, uh, let's see, another one would be uh, natkinase, which dissolves blood clots. Uh, Revesitrol, which is actually from red wine and what they claim is part of the Mediterranean diet that you can, in French diet, where you can eat a lot of cholesterol and not have a problem because of Revesitrol. It's also antiviral, anti-inflammatory, and uh, it can reduce clotting. So, you know, bottom line is, you know, we, we're coming up with a, a, a group of symptoms that you shouldn't have if you if you had a safe vaccine and if you had a safe vaccine you would have already done animal testing on this which they managed to skip which i I think is a criminal act on the part of the fda and the cdc to allow experimental medicines on human beings without having experimental medicine uh, trials on animals which the three previous trials for mers sars and uh, zika had all used the same mRNA technology and all had 100% mortality within weeks of uh, of p- 
testing with ferrets and mice. So if it's not safe for ferrets and mice, and then you're going to take the same technology and say, well, now we've got an emergency problem. We have to use this on humans. Uh, I think that's a pretty immoral position to take. And at this point, with millions of people having adverse reactions, I think it's well past point where we need to suspend this trial. So uh, you mentioned Dr. Charles Hoff. Again, I, I spoke with him, I think it was last week on my, my other radio program. He said 62% of his patients that had two jabs uh, or one jab had blood clotting. Some of it was even unnoticeable for them. Um, he seemed to lay the blame at the feet of the spike protein. So is it the spike protein or is it the graphene oxide? And what, what, what is the difference? The spike protein is, is the outer portion of the crown appearance on the virus itself, and it's what sheds. And so the virus, if you've got a 20 nanometer virus, you're talking a hundredth of a nanometer spike protein. And those are what's actually caused, uh, they're called prions, and that's what the cause of um, mad cow disease. And so you're basically, and they've, they've started discovering that same condition inside uh, autopsies of people that have died after having the jabs. So again, the connection with the graphene oxide nanotubes and, and the spike proteins, is there a connection? I'm just trying to ascertain what might be at the root of this clotting. Is it the, is it the spike proteins or is it the, na- the, graph- the, the, uh, the graphene? Well, I think what the original purpose of the graphene was was a delivery system that they could coat with um, polyethylene glycol, which if you put it in the radiator of your, of your car, it's called antifreeze. But if you wrap a nanoparticle with it, you can carry a mRNA package that would decompose at higher temperatures inside a um, minus you know, zero degree thermos and deliver that to a subject and use that as your delivery system for an mRNA that once it's inside your body, it can start going into cells and doing its its cell modifications, which is actually what this is doing. This is rewriting your body's DNA, which to me is a criminal act. So that's but but I, what I think has happened, and this is just speculation on my part, but but based on the studies that have come out of Spain, that where they said that 95 percent of the um, Pfizer vaccine was nothing but graphene oxide, I think they've decided well since we don't have to show what our ingredients are anyway, and since it's more difficult to manufacture and transport the mRNA technology, and we've already infected a certain percentage of the population with that, then let's just go ahead and go straight to to a a very easily produced and cheap uh, toxin that we know will have about a 10 to 12 month uh, lead time for for symptoms to show up. So that's what it appears to me at this point. You know, it, it's just it's just hard to believe. Oh yeah, here we go. Prions calls spongiform encephalopathy, which is what we commonly call mad cow disease. 
But right. another interesting article came out, and this is on the June twenty second, uh, twenty twenty one issue of Nature magazine. Ivermectin versus SARS two. Ivermectin is a fungus that was discovered in Japan in nineteen sixty seven. Had amazing um, success in treating river blindness, and so it's been on the um, who's list of mandatory medicines along with hydroxychloroquine and both of those have been effective at preventing and curing the SARS-2 patients. So if you have two well-known and it's just off-label use for two well-known and respected and safe treatments, then you had no reason to have an emergency uh, authorization because you already had treatments and you had cures and you had preventative. So there's another criminal act on the part of the FDA and CDC by even authorizing this stuff when they had treatments. So, you know, it's pretty pretty disturbing that there are people that are like this. Well, uh, Dr. Peter McCullough, I mentioned, who was on my program a number of times, and he testified before the Senate, I believe it was uh, the Homeland Security Committee hearing, talking about how there was initially interest in developing some antivirals and some off-label use. You mentioned ivermectin and hydroxy. But all of a sudden then, it was never mind any of that. It's all about the vaccines and only the vaccines, and we're not interested in anything else but the vaccines. So in effect... What you had was there was zero standard of care. There was only get your vaccine or or nothing. There was no standard of care. They just released the NASDAQ um, performance for the second quarter of 2021, and Pfizer made $19 billion in profit. Their Alexis drug, which is uh, used to treat blood clots, was up 13%, and their... Uh, Vendiquil drug, which is used for cardiomyopathy, is up 77%. So if you're allowed to make $20 per jab on a, a mandatory, soon-to-be mandatory experimental vaccine that causes blood clots and uh, heart failure, and then you also sell medicine that treats blood clots and heart failure, it's a pretty good business model for you. But for the rest of the planet, this is not really what we want, you know? No, it's, so. a, it's a good racket. They've got us coming and going. Joseph, uh, we're at the top of the hour. We'll take a time out. He'll stay with us second hour as well. We'll open up the phone lines, questions, and comments. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show right after these. <laughs> 